Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, we are continuing through a new series of talks that focus on biblical stewardship. In these talks, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer will be leading us through the Bible, bringing practical application of giving. Not just the tithe, but the giving of yourself, why we need to do it, and how it is God-honoring. Today's talk is financial stewardship. If you're in the Ashland, Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. And now, here's he. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is where we'll be this morning. We have begun a series on biblical stewardship in week one. We looked at what biblical stewardship is. It's the fact that God has entrusted his things to us, but that as stewards, as his creation, nothing belongs to us. The clothes you're wearing, the car that you drove to church, the house that you live in, the money that you have in the bank, it all belongs to the Lord. And that our giving is directly tied to the lordship of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is Lord of our life, we freely give because we recognize that it all belongs to him. In week two, we looked at one of the big reasons why we don't give in terms of to the Lord and to his work is because many of us are caught in the covetousness trap that we're trying to live standards of living that God never intended for us. And we know that we're in a covetousness trap when you don't have any time for God, you have no money to give to God, and frankly, you're living in mountains of credit card debt. We're caught in a covetousness trap and Satan has us snared and has us working crazy hours and pulling our family apart because we believe that our standard of living should be up here, when in fact, the Bible says, better is a dry morsel with quietness than great feasting with strife. And so we talked about that. This week, we're gonna talk about financial stewardship because we recognize that stewardship is not just what we give to God in terms of money. It, it's our time, our talent, and our treasure, the things that we do. Do we serve God? Do we give God our time? And so this is just one component of the stewardship process is this financial stewardship. So we're going to look at this week, it's going to be two parts on the financial stewardship part. It's going to be this week, we're going to look at what do we give to God? You know, when, when we talk about offering, when we scan that QR code, when we put money inside those envelopes, how much should be in there? I don't know. Next week, we're going to look at not what we give to God, but what do we keep for ourselves, and how do we use that in a wise way? How do we live wisely so that we can live generously, not just in our giving to the Lord, but that we can live generously with others, that we can be blessed to be a blessing to those around us? So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, this was going to be looking at four verses this morning. We're only going to look at two now. Uh, I literally cut the sermon in half because I realized that in 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2, it's almost like every other word is a full point. And so to spare you from being here until about 2 o'clock, we went ahead and just, we're looking at the first two verses. You're welcome. I know you're all ready to get out to cheddars already. Your stomach is growling. It's okay. Take a breath mint or something and let's move on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you remember Paul is teaching the Corinthians how to give. And the Corinthians, they weren't the godliest of all churches. Uh, In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 16, the the book is largely a book of rebuke. He's answering questions. He's telling me, you're doing it this way, but you should be doing it this way. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way through the book, uh, it's largely a book of rebuke about what they're not doing right. And so when Paul's talking about their giving, it's because clearly the Corinthians weren't real good at giving. 
And so he's going to teach them a few things about giving. The first thing we're going to see here uh, is in verse 1, that giving is through your local church. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. I think it's interesting. When Paul wants to talk about individual Christian giving, who does he give that teaching to? It's to the church. Okay, and so our giving is to God through the church. But notice he says here, concerning this collection, this is what he gave to the churches at Galatia, and he says, you also are to follow this. So what he's saying here is, what he's about to teach you, it's not cultural. You can't say, well, that was just for Corinth at that time, or that was just his, his time period or whatever. This is something that was given church-wide. This isn't just something localized for the Corinthians by themselves. But again, when Paul wants to instruct individual believers on how to give, he instructs them through the church because that is the, that is the institution that God ordained that we should be giving our giving to God through them. When we give to the church that we attend, I want you to understand this very important distinction. You're not giving to the church. You're giving to God through the church. Why is that an important distinction to make? Because if you're giving your money to the church, what are you going to do when the church does something you don't like? What are you going to do when the pastor preaches over the time that you like? Which happens probably with some deal of frequency here. What do you do? What do you do when the church doesn't, when somebody offends you at church, somebody bothered you, did something you didn't like, you feel offended, or, you know, business meeting didn't go your way. What do, what's going to happen to your giving when your giving is to a church? It's going to drop because the church is going to disappoint you. You're not going to like everything that I teach. You're not going to like everything that's in the Bible. Your flesh isn't going to appreciate it. There's going to be times when at church, you're going you're gonna to have friction with people. We're a family. You have friction with your wife. You have friction with your kids. You had friction last Christmas when the crazy uncle came to your house. Families have friction, but you don't leave your family for it. You don't stop. Well, you know, Uncle Freddie offended me at Christmas, so I'm not going to make him dinner now. We don't do that. We don't do God that way either because we're give, our giving is not to an institution. It's not to the church. Our giving is through the church, but ultimately we're looking past the church and we're giving to God, and that's an important distinction. Uh, even in the Old Testament, God recognized that their giving was to him, and it was a, it was a, whether it was a heart of love and submission to him or a lack of it. Malachi 3.8, when God is talking about their tithe under Old Testament law, again, even then God saw that their giving was to God through the temple. Look what God says. Will a man rob God? Wow, nobody wants to be accused of committing a felony against God. But he says, will a man rob God? And, and he says, yet you are robbing me. And the people go, hey, not me. <laughs> How have we robbed you? He says, in what? How have they robbed God? What have they not given to God? Their tithes and offerings. And so when they refused to give to the temple, it's not just because they didn't like the temple. They didn't like the color of the carpet that the temple put down. And so they stopped giving. When they stopped giving to the temple, God saw that as a, a personal affront under the Old Testament law. You are giving to me, understand. That temple is just a visible earthly thing. But when you give or don't give, it's not to an institution. It's to God himself. I mean, there's, there's so many, there, there's just so much to unpack here, and I don't have enough time, so we're just going to move on from that point. But just understand that our giving is not to a church, it's through a church. And that's another important distinction to make, because if we believe that our giving is to institutions, we're going to become very controlling of our giving as well, won't we? Uh, I've met Christians before who say, oh, I give to God. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't give to the church, but I, I give. I give to people. I give to the poor. I give to the Billy Graham Association. I give to the crisis pregnancy center, I give to missionaries, I give. Is that biblical Christian giving? 
Yes and no. Yes, we should be doing these things. But no, it doesn't replace what we give to the church because giving is to God, but it's through the local church. Or sometimes we get controlling in our giving when, when Jesus isn't fully our Lord and we want to be in full control. We want to be our own Lord. Sometimes we can kill a church this way. We can give a runaway designated giving in a church. Hang on, brother. I like my designated giving. Why can designated giving, if it's out of control, kill a church? Because if all of us decided, I'm going to control where all of my money goes within the church, what's going to happen? The youth and the kids are going to get tons of money, and the church is going to fold because the pastors don't get paid, light bill doesn't get paid. I don't think in the history of humankind anybody said, you know, I want to designate some money for the utilities of the church. I don't think that's ever happened. Dana, has that ever happened? You ever got something designated? I want, to, I want to give designated way to the paying the light bill. Not very often. <clears throat> when we give in designated ways, it's because we want to control. We want to be our own Lord. I want to be in charge of how this money is distributed. Is that by faith? I would argue that it's not. We simply give to the Lord and we trust the leaders that God has called and trained and ordained and placed here. Now, I give, we give designated sometimes in certain circumstances, but just for me personally, I'm gonna tell you, we give above and beyond our tithe because we wouldn't run our own household this way. I mean, imagine, uh, my wife and I, we've always been, we've been very fortunate. We've always been a one-income family. And so there's times when Amber would be at home and she'd be, and she's raising our kids. She's homeschooling our kids. She's doing all these other things. At times she'd work kind of part-time and things on the side, but you know, she was always at home. Imagine then if I took my paycheck and instead of putting it in the bank where we both can freely use it, uh, I decide, you know what? I'm going to pull it out in cash. And once in a while, I'll dole a little bit of it out to her. Here's your allowance for the week, baby. Or I, I, just, I keep it in cash and I control it so that only I can spend it on the things that I think are worthy. But I won't trust the woman that I'm in a covenanted relationship with. Is that a healthy home? That's a very unhealthy home. Friends, we need counseling if that's how I'm running my home. But sometimes we'll do God's family like that. I'm only gonna give to the things that I think are important. Where's the trust in God? Is God, by the way, guys, is God in charge of the leadership of your church? He should be. He is. Romans 13, 1. All authority that exists has been ordained by God. Proverbs 21, 1. The, even the king's heart, the highest power in the land, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, God can take that heart and turn it wherever he will. Friends, when we give and we control in our giving, it's a lordship issue. I don't trust God to control the leaders and authorities that are above me. And we, and we will harm the institutions that we're a part of. And that's why it's important that we understand when we're giving, Paul is giving this instruction to individuals, but through the church. And our giving is the same way. We give to God through the church. We give to God and we just say, God, I'm casting my bread out in the waters here and you, you do whatever you want with it. You multiply that, but I'm trusting you with this. You wanna give in designated ways for us? It's always been above our, tith our tithes and offerings. We give our base giving to the church. We don't control how that goes. We just trust God and its leadership and its people, which is you guys too, because you vote on the budget every year. And we trust that God is gonna work through his people. Number two, we're gonna see here that giving is part of our weekly worship. Look at verse two. We're not gonna get very far. On the first day of every week, stop. Yeah, I told you, it's gonna take a while. On the first day of every week, he's going in the context of giving, he's talking about we give on the first day of every week. What is that? That's today, that's Sunday, okay? 
because that is when the church met. So their giving was a regular part of their weekly worship service. When the church meets publicly, and for then it was on Sundays, and here's a, here's a real shocker, if you do enough uh, church history, you do enough archeological study and whatnot, you're gonna discover that the church did meet every Sunday, but often, especially in the Gentile churches, they met on Sunday nights only as far as big public church gatherings. Throughout the rest of the week, they would still seek each other out in the temple daily, individual discipleship relationships, small groups. Paul said in Acts 20, 20, I taught you publicly in the big group setting, but then the rest of the time, I'm teaching you house to house. Throughout the week, I'm doing small groups, community groups. And so you have, it almost sounds like the unity funnel, doesn't it? Big church, that's where you are right now. We're praying that you'll get involved in our community groups to do life together with one another. But beyond that, we want you to do more than just sit in a pew. We want you to get discipled. We want you to get into D groups. If you want to get into a D group, again, we got new D groups forming right now, discipleship groups, and you'll get put into a group of anywhere from two to four people, and you will have a, a close mentorship relationship with them, and we will teach you the how-tos of the Christian faith, the things that you always wished you learned, but nobody ever bothered teaching you when you got saved. You just started coming to church, and you didn't know why. Anyway, that's a secondary sermon. I want you to see here that giving is on the first day of every week because it was part, is meant to be part of our regular worship. It was supposed to be something that we gave. I want you to see in Philippians chapter four, if you wanna turn there, you can, but uh, Philippians four, verses 16 through 20, Paul says, even in Thessalonica, when you sent help for my needs, once again, pause, I want you to see that when the church gave, not only did it care for the church's needs, but often they would take collections of the saints and for the saints. So a church, they would take a collection from their people, but it, and it would take care of their needs and their leadership. A workman is worthy of his wages, the Bible says. But then beyond that, they would take up enough, not only for their church's needs, but for the needs of other churches in needy areas around them. It's a first century cooperative program. I think Paul was Southern Baptist. Doug, I don't know, maybe. It was, but you see, a church saw that they had a greater responsibility than just our own little institution here, that our money needs to be enough for us and enough to overflow to other needy churches in the area. And so Paul thanked them for supporting him and sending support to other churches. He says, not that I seek the gift. I'm not just about the money. He says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I am, what I'm seeking is your spiritual maturity and the blessing of God that comes upon that. When you give, he says, I wanna see God bless you richly for your, for your giving and support. He says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now, here's what I want you to see after that, what, how Paul describes the gifts that they sent. The, the verse right after that, he said he calls their giving a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, and he calls it pleasing to God. So Paul sees that the giving, when they would give to Paul, he says, he says when you're giving, it's not even just to me, it's to God through the church and through these different ministries. He says, and when you do, it's a sacrifice acceptable that our giving to the Lord, when we financially take from ourselves and we give to the Lord in his ministry, we give to the church, we support missionaries, we do these things, God sees that as a part of our worship and it's a sacrifice. It's something that I take. We don't kill animals anymore. You notice we don't have an altar here. Anybody bring a goat today to sacrifice? Nobody? We didn't have any goats or lambs. I don't hear any noise like that. So but what is our sacrifice today, friends? We don't sacrifice for our sins, but a sacrifice nonetheless is something that we take. You know, you could have used that lamb for wool or you could have had some mutton for lunch, but you chose to lower your standard of living to bring that, that lamb to the temple at that time and you'd kill it and you'd offer it to God. 
In that same way, Paul sees that when we give of our money, that's money you could have used to go out, you know, to Texas Roadhouse and get yourself a nice steak. But you didn't. You lowered your standard of living because you believe in God more than just improving your own way of life and your own comfort. And so it's a sacrifice. It's a fragrant offering. It's pleasing to God. It's, God sees as an act of worship to him when we give of our money. Now I want you to see a famous verse in its context, Philippians 4.19. It's the only verse that you probably knew from this passage. What is that? What does that verse say? And my God, how many times have you quoted this in January because we just had Christmas? How many times have you quoted that this month? Oh, but my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We love that verse. If you believed in tattoos, you'd have it tattooed on your arm. Okay, we love this verse. And a lot of times how we apply it is this. I'm going to live however I want, and I just know God's going God's to take care of it. You know, it's like going to a restaurant. I'm going to order up the whole menu, and I just know God's going to take care of it at the end of the day. Well, that's in the context of here. This is actually an assurance that Paul is giving to those who are giving to the Lord. This isn't just some blanket thing. Go out and live as carnally and fleshly as you want, and God will take care of it in the end. Go rack up tons of credit card debt. God will sort it out in the end. This is an assurance for those believers who are living wisely, stewarding God's resources wisely, and giving sacrificially to the Lord. As you do that, there's always a little bit of fear and trepidation in a believer, isn't there? When you consider making God a part of your monthly budget, there's a little bit of fear there. I don't think we'll make it. And that's why Paul gives us Philippians 4.19. As you insert God into your budget, trust him that he will provide all of your needs according to his riches in Christ. And so this isn't just a blanket, God's gonna take care of me no matter how I live. This is as we give to the Lord, don't worry about how you're gonna make ends meet. God will take care of your needs. So let's use this verse in, a, in, a, in its proper context. You know, often people will tell me, uh, you know, they're afraid. You know, I just don't have enough money to tithe or to give or, you know, whatever percentage you do. I don't have enough money to give to the Lord regularly as a part of my, my faithful giving. I just can't do it. I, couldn't, I wouldn't make bills. I'm not making bills now. Friends, I can't afford not to give. Because when I give, that's when the, the, the blessing of, when I demonstrate faith in God, do you really feel like God's gonna let me down? When you exercise faith and you give to the God and you sacrifice to God, do you really think God's gonna say, well, I'm gonna let that guy flounder? He says, no, my God's gonna provide all of your needs according to his riches. So don't be afraid. In fact, I wonder sometimes how many of us families are giving little to nothing to God and still struggling with our finances, and that's the reason. Because we're not honoring God with the first fruits of our, of our, of our income. Because God, he, it's not that God needs your money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's that God wants your heart. Because our money is our independence. And as long as we have money, I can do what I want to do in life. And I can be my own Lord. And God says there's only room for one Lord. And it's got to be me. And I want you to recognize that you're not your own Lord. By giving of your money, your independence, your freedom, your power, I want you to give me a portion of it so that you can show me that I'm truly the Lord of your life and that you trust me with the results. You trust me to take care of you in the end. That's what it always has been. Even, just, even if we talk about ties and stuff, God, ultimately, he wants our heart and our trust in him. By the way, in the Old Testament, that's why God had Sabbaths and things. You give a whole day of the week and you're not work earning and working you know and earning money to get ahead you're going to take a full day out and even if the rest of the world is working seven days a week and you're stressed out that man they're getting ahead of me financially i need that last day i can't give my sabbath to the lord 
God wanted them by faith to trust that you'll, you'll do better in six days than those pagans will in seven. And is that true? Do, the, do Jews tend to financially do better in six days than the rest of the world does with seven? Buddy, those are the richest, wealthiest, most successful people on the planet, but they honor God with that requirement. But it's more than just that Sabbath. They would have a Sabbath every, every seven years. God says, it's a very agrarian economy. God says, every seven years, I want you to take that field, that field upon which your entire life rotates around. It's your source of income. Seventh year, I want you to do nothing that year with that field. I want you to let it lie fallow. Let the animals, let the poor eat of it. I want you to trust that God can do more with you in six years than you could do farming that field in seven. And, is, and does that pan out? Like I said, the Jews are the most successful people on the planet. They trust God and God had blessed that. Beyond that, they had seven feast periods throughout the year. Some of them weren't just feast days, they were feast periods, like a whole week or so at a time. And three of those were pilgrimage feasts where they'd have to have travel days on the beginning and tail end of that, there were tons, the Jews had more vacation days than, than Europe, than France, you know what I'm saying? They, they were always out and taking time off because God wanted to show them life is more than making money and improving the standard of living. Life is about God and he wants you to trust him with that and give him your time, give him your talent, give him your treasure. Trust God with the, out, with the outcome that he's going to do better with your life when you trust him than if you try to just hoard it all for yourself or if you just try to keep all your time for yourself, your money for yourself, your talents to yourself. God will do better when you trust him with it. Luke six thirty eight, Jesus was saying basically these same things. When you trust me and give, God's gonna take care of you. He says, give and it will be given to you. And then he uses this phrase, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, Jesus here is describing something that was a common practice. Uh, basket girl, if you don't mind. Uh, thank you very much. It's a new position in the church. She's gonna be leaving very shortly. So if anybody would like to take the position of basket girl, it's gonna be free pretty soon. So uh, what they would do, it is an expected, this is a business transaction that Jesus is describing. You can still see this in many parts of the Middle East, uh, India, China. You go to an open market. We don't see them so much here. We shop at Walmart and Kroger. But uh, they would go to a market. Let's say you want to go buy corn. You'd be like, here, corn. And the, the guy, he'd get down on the ground and he'd, he'd be scooping up some corn, putting it in a basket, and he'd fill it about three quarters full. And then he'd give it a good kind of rotational shake. He's trying to make sure all the corn settles down. And then he would fill it up to the top and he'd give it kind of another rotational shake. And then once he got it full to the top, okay, then he would take more corn and he would heap it into a nice cone. And then he would pat the cone down, right? And then he's still not done. He would poke holes in the corn and then he would fill it with individual grains. Now, why would he go to such fastidious detail to fill your basket like that? It's to assure you uh, that I mean good towards you. I'm gonna give you every last kernel that you can possibly carry. I'm going to provide completely and fully. You're not going to lack even one grain. Basket girl, thank you. You're not gonna lack anything. Down to the last grain, I'm going to give that to you. You can trust me with that. This is the illustration that Jesus has chosen to use in terms of Christian giving. Trust God with it. Bring God your basket and then give to God. And when God gives back to you, he says God is gonna shake it, press it down. 
He says, and then, you know, he's going to put it into a cone. He's going to poke holes. He's going to put every last grain in, and he's going to give it back to you. What that means is you can trust that God is going to provide for your every need down to the last grain of corn. You can trust God. This is Jesus. You can trust God that as you give, God is going to care for your needs because ultimately it's about God getting to your heart. That's what that's what it's giving about. That's what this whole stewardship thing is about. Number three, we're going to see here that all believers give. Look at verse two, two B. Each of you is to put something aside. Who is each of you? Is there anybody here who is not included in each of you? Okay, each of you. He's talking to Christians here. Anybody here who claims to be a Christian is each of you. And so Paul's teaching on giving is that there's not a single believer that when we gather on Sunday should not be giving something. Well, what about little kids? Let me tell you, with my kids, we used to, when they would get increase, even if it, you know, it's before they had a job, they don't have a career, but, you know, grandma sends them 25 bucks for their birthday. You know what we would do with our kids? Maybe you think we're crazy, but we would teach them at these early ages. We would disciple them. We'd say, you know what? You don't get to spend $25 on bubblegum Snickers and, and toys. You got to take that money, and mom's going to help you use that in a wise way. And so we're going to give 10% off the top to God. Boom, done. You know, as you see, the kids just, you know, they're, they're a little bit disappointed because they're not mature yet. They're children. By the way, mature people are always very reticent to give. When children are mature and they're giving freely from the heart, that's when you know God's got them. But until they're at that point, we have to put them under the law, okay? We, you're gonna give 10% off the top, we're gonna put like 50% into savings, and here's this little bit left, and now you can go do something fun with that. But you're gonna use your money wisely, but you're going to give God off the top. We did that with our children when they were believers. What about if somebody's, you know, I'm on a fixed income, I'm really old, I shouldn't have to give anything to God, I did my time. In Jesus' day, was there an old widow? Okay, when we say widow, we don't mean she wasn't just old. She had no means of caring for herself. Did she still give? She gave the widow's might, didn't she? And yet Jesus, when he saw that, God blessed that giving and said she gave more than all these put together. And so whether you're really young or whether you're really old, well, what if I'm a, a family with little kids? I don't got any money. We're starving. We're struggling to make ends meet. We still give because it says each of you is to put something aside. By the way, Corinth didn't get this right the first time. Paul says, each of you is to give something aside, but we know there's not just 1 Corinthians. What does your Bible also have? 2 Corinthians. You guys are a sharp crowd. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul has to repeat this command again. Did you know that? But each of you must give as he has decided in his heart. He says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what kind of giver? a cheerful giver. In other words, God wants you to give from the heart. And this is what God's trying to get to. Everything we do as church, it's not just religious exercise. We do it because it's traditional and I've always done it. It's what I did since I was a kid. We do it because in my heart, I want to give to God because he meets that much to me. God wants us to get to that place in our, in our heart. But he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. In other words, there's nobody coercing you to give. In this church, it's one of the reasons we don't pass the plate. We're not just going to pass the plate and have some deacon standing over you looking at you. Whew. It's two weeks now Randy hasn't given anything. You, you, know, you, ever, you ever feel that? You know the pressure, right? You go to church and then people are passing the plate and you kind of feel the pressure. You're like, oh, I wasn't going to give today, but I feel like maybe I have to. I don't want to, but oh, honey, what do you got in your wallet? Only a 20? We'll give next week. 
you know. That, that pressure can't be there. You've got to do it as you have decided in your heart. As a church, we're not going to bully you. I don't even know what you make or what you, uh, I don't know what you give. I'm not going to treat you better because you give more. I'm not going to treat you worse because you give less. This has to be between you and the Lord. But each one gives, and each one gives as he has decided in his heart. Now, this word decided here is, is a word only used this time and in 2 Corinthians 9 in the whole Greek New Testament. This word decided, it means a premeditated, predetermined course of action ahead of time. You didn't just show up at church and go, oh, I forgot about the offering today. What do we got here today? Not a whole lot. I don't know. I'll throw a five. Baby, you got a couple ones, make it look a little thicker so people think we're better givers. You know, let's just toss that in the plate and move on. It isn't just a spur of the moment. Oh, it's offering time. Okay, just whatever, whatever, whatever. Throw it in and we, we're done. That's not premeditated, predetermined course of action. It's just sort of a spur of the moment thing. It shows that your heart wasn't there. You weren't thinking about it ahead of time. It wasn't a decided, determined gift that you were gonna give to God. It was, uh, instead, it's like a man who forgot it was Valentine's Day. You men ever do that? I'm asking the wrong people. Ladies, if your husband's ever forgotten, it was Valentine's Day. It's coming up in a few weeks, by the way. Uh, there's men who are predetermined in what they will give to their wives on Valentine's Day. And then there's the rest of us guys where we don't remember it's Valentine's Day until we're at the gas station on the way home. Oh, boy. What can I get my wife that will say, I love you for the last 27 years of marriage here at the, uh, you know, gas up? at the marathon station. And so, you know, or, or you drop by, well, I think CVS always has something, you know, some pharmacy, Walmart, what do they got? And you, you end up bringing your wife home, you know, some little kitten or something that's stuffed that says made in Taiwan and a little box of waxy chocolates. And you're like, hey, baby, I was thinking about you today. She's not real impressed with that, guys, by the way, because it showed that you forgot until you were on the way home, and you gave her just kind of what you had available at that time. She's not real pleased. But when you're premeditated, man, every once in a while, men get these like sparks of, of uh, inspiration. We decide to do something unique for birthday or Valentine's Day. And, you know, we'll make like some collage or we'll make some like uh, video thing for our wife. We'll kind of splice together old videos with some music. Uh, we'll do something special that she can tell, hey, you put a lot of premeditated time and effort into this. Does that mean a lot more to her? It does. It doesn't even matter how much you spent on it. Cheap way to do Valentine's Day, by the way. Uh, what matters to her is that it's a premeditated thing. You thought about it. You put effort into it. You are giving her a gift from the heart. And that's what our giving should be. Each one of you has, needs to give as he has decided in his heart. Bef long before you ever came to church at home, you should have thought ahead, what am I going to give as an act of worship to the Lord? That's 2 Corinthians 9 style of giving. We're going to say number four here, that our giving must be viewed as an investment. He says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, and he uses this term to store it up. Store it up is a Greek word, thesorizo. We get the word thesaurus. A thesaurus is a place where we store up all of these words in the English language so that we can use it at a later date when we want to sound really smart. Okay, so that's a thesaurus. It's something we store up to be used at a later date. And and the Bible here is saying that each one is supposed to give and view your giving as an investment. You're storing it up for some future use and some later date. He's not the only one that uses this. The exact same Greek word is used in Matthew 6, verse 19. 
Jesus says, do not, and there it is. Instead of using store up, this translated here, lay up. Do not lay up or invest your, uh, for yourselves treasures on earth. He says, because it's not safe here. He says, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. He says, but lay up or invest your money, where? In heaven. How do you get your money to heaven? Well, we don't just throw it in the air and say, well, I told God to take what he wanted. He didn't take it, so I assumed it was the rest of it was for me. That's not how we lay up treasures in heaven. How do you get money to heaven? You give to God through the church. That's how you invest. That's how you do your, your giving as an investment to God. To God through the church. And he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And how safe is it there? Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. There's another time in the New Testament this same word store up or lay up is used. Jesus' little brother, by the way, Jesus' little brother had a lot of spit and vinegar. That boy could preach, and he was a hard preacher. We're, we're both just going to read this together, and then we're going to have a few stanzas of just as I am, all right? Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. I told you we needed some just as I am after James here. You have, and here's our word, you have stored up or you have laid up he says, treasure in the last days. You lived here on earth in luxury. In other words, you just lived for comfort. You live for things that are gonna make your life easier and more fun, more enjoyable. He says, you lived in comfort and in self-indulgence. You saw the purpose of your life as investing into all the wants you could possibly have. He says, when we live like this, he says, you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, there's going to come a day that, like cattle, every one of us is going to die. And in that day, you're just going to be a fat cow, but you haven't sent your money ahead. You're going to use it all up on you. You got big fat. You, you, so fat, we couldn't barely move or do anything for the Lord. Instead, we should have invested or laid up our treasures in heaven. James says, you laid up your treasures on earth, and, you just, and you're like a fat cow going to the slaughter. All that fat you got for yourself, you're going to lose it someday. When we, when we give, we save. And when we give, we, we save cheerfully, like you do with your 401k. It's an investment into your future. Why do you, hopefully you do, by the way, put money into your 401k? Why do you do that? It's no fun to put money, do you like putting money in your 401k? I don't personally enjoy it because I could be using that money right now to live a better standard of living. I could go out to eat more often. I could buy nice things for myself, have better clothes. I could drive a car that isn't 20 years old. But instead, I take that money that I could be using for myself right now and I put it away in a 401k. Why would I do that? Because I know at a future date, I'm gonna get old and I'm gonna be tired and I'm not gonna be able to work as much as I do now. And I'm gonna need money back then. So I joyfully and cheerfully contribute to my 401k. And the question I ask is, is not how little can I put in my 401k and get by? My question is, when we're talking, how much can we put in our 401k and still get by now? That is the kind of investment Jesus is talking about. We don't ask the question, how little do I give to God and still get by? That's, that's a question they would ask under the Old Testament law. Under grace, we're like, what can I give? How much can I invest into God and still do all right where I'm at today? That's the heart of New Testament giving. It's not the law, it's by grace. And uh, number five here, we see that our, our giving is a percentage. Probably a better word is a proportional. 
He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart and store it up. And then he says, as he may prosper. In other words, God prospers all of us at very different levels. If you guys work part-time at Chick-fil-A, you're getting prospered a certain amount. God doesn't expect you to give the same amount as some guy who's, you know, in his 50s, in the prime of his earning. God doesn't expect you to give the same amount. We don't have a set membership fee here at church. Great. You want to be a member here at Unity Baptist Church? That'll be $10,000 a year, please. Thank you. Next. We don't do that. It's proportional. And it's a proportion that you, I believe, determine in your heart between you and the Lord. What am I going to give? But it's as he may prosper. Whenever and how much God prospers us, we honor God with money off of the top because we recognize where did I get that money? Is it because I'm so great? I'm so good looking? I'm so powerful? It's because God gave me that money. Everything I have belongs to him. In fact, God's people have always given that way. The giving is the natural response of a believer when they understand that God is their creator and he gave them that. It's a natural response. Even prior to the Old Testament law, people would give to God. Abram, uh, it says that in Genesis 14, after his return of the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, in other words, God gave Abram this, this great and mighty victory over this, this confederation of kings. And when he got back with the spoils of war, what's his first and natural response prior to the Old Testament law? It says, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, I'm not saying that this is the tithe. What I'm saying is this, a natural response prior to the law of God. Remember, Abram's time, he spoke with God directly at times, but there was no law until Moses. So prior to the law, just his natural response is, God has blessed me in a great way. I want to give to God. And when God motivated this man to give through the priest, he gave him a tenth. Now, later on, that tenth would be codified into the Mosaic law. And under the Mosaic law, you know, well, we just read in Malachi 3, they robbed God of the tithes and offerings that God demanded of them. And by the way, when they gave in the Old Testament law, don't think that when, if you tithe 10%, you're doing what they did in the Old Testament because you're not. And here's why. When they tithed in the Old Testament, you know there wasn't just one tithe, right? There were multiple tithes. You had the tithe that came off the top that e essentially paid for their civil leaders. It was sort of their, their governmental tax. And then you had another tithe that you would give every year, and this was to take care of religious things, religious functions, uh, the, the feasts and the festivals and all the stuff they did religiously. That was a second tenth. And then every three years, you would give another tenth. So there were some years you gave 30% tithe. So don't think you're tithing if you give 10% like the Old Testament law. Um, they gave all of these different tithes unto God. But what I want you to see here is that religiously speaking, they gave 10% prior to the law. They gave 10% under the law and more because they would give offerings uh, above and beyond that. And then even in Jesus' day, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus talking to the Pharisees says, man, you hypocrites, you tithe of your spices, anise, mint, and cumin, you, you tithe of all these things. He says, but you neglect the most important parts of the law, which is, uh, which is changing your heart. You need to be living for those most important things, the weightier matters. He says, but then he says, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus says you ought to be tithing because when Jesus was preaching, they were still under the Old Testament law. So in Jesus' day, they were still giving a tenth and beyond, tithes and offerings. Now, the real question comes to it here. Are believers required to tithe in the New Testament? Post-Jesus, you're not gonna find a command to a specific percent. Why then would I give any more than I have to give? Why would I ever give at all? It's because that has always been the natural response of a heart that is fully given to God. 
Prior to the law, Abram gave 10%. Under the law, they gave up to 30% at times. Post-law, uh, do you know that a lot of evidence of early Christian giving is that many of them gave 20%? And part of their thought was this. Under the law, when we only did what we absolutely had to do in the bare minimum, why as children, sons and daughters who've been freed and matured, we have a completed Bible, and we have the Holy Spirit living within us, why would the standard of giving go down? No, in fact, more often than not, they didn't give, just give 20%. There would be times that they would look at their household and go, okay, we have some needs, what can I do? And they would, remember Barnabas and others, they would sell whole pieces of land, and they would give God not 10%, they'd give God 100% of that. There would be things, they'd just look and they'd be like, not what do I have to give to God, but what can I do to increase and further the, the work of God on earth? That was the heart of spirit-filled of spirit filled. Uh, free will giving. Yes, New Testament giving is free will. And let me tell you this, you won't hear pastors tell you this, if you don't want to give here at Unity Baptist Church, don't give a dime. If you don't want to give, if you will not cheerfully give, if you're not giving as an act of a recognition of the lordship of Jesus in your life, don't give. This church is not going to fold because your carnal money isn't going into the plate. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Seminary, once told his preacher boys, he says, make a fist, put it in a bucket of water and remove it. He says, the hole you leave is how essential you are to God's purposes. God doesn't need you, but you need him. You need God's blessing on your life. You need God to provide for your needs. You and I both do. And so don't think that you're gonna bankrupt a church. Oh yeah, the church may suffer for a period of time. God will still take care of us. We may have to live lean. That's okay. God will take care of us. But if you can't give cheerfully from the heart because you want to, you want to invest in God, you believe in what God is doing, and you want to use your life for something other than fattening your life with comfort, then give freely. Give joyfully. It's why we don't pass the plate. We want you to give from free will. We want you to give from your heart, and we want you to give openly to God, asking God, what can I give, not what must I give? When you can give like that, friends, then give, and then I fully expect that God will not only provide for your needs, but you're gonna see that you're living in greater abundance when you live in obedience to the word of God. I want you to see though, um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, we read earlier, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not under compulsion. I want you to read 1 Corinthians 9, 8 now. When we give cheerfully, because God loves a cheerful giver, what is the promise after that? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work this word grace here he's not talking about salvific grace that you know God is you're going to earn salvation by giving money to the Lord instead this word by the way grace is anything that God gives us the fact that he causes the sun come out is grace the fact that he gives us food is grace God's gracious provision is what he's talking about here when we give cheerfully and joyfully and sacrificially to the Lord, the promise in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 is, my God is now able to make all grace abound to you. You have opened up, you have freed God to bless you. When we're just keeping everything for ourselves, being my own Lord and controlling my own life in every little way, we have, if we will, we have limited the, the blessing that will come in because we're not living by faith. We're not living with Christ as our Lord. We're living with ourselves as our Lord. I only trust in what I can do, what I can earn, what I can keep. And we've limited the amount of blessing that God can pour into our heart and our life. Just me personally, 
and I don't do this very often, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you what we give. We have always given at least 10%. There are times we've gone 12, 13%, and then above and beyond that, we have given tithes and offerings. When a missionary comes through, we'll give above. When a missionary comes through, we don't give out of our tithe. We always gave above our tithe for that. When a kid needs to go to camp and I wanna sponsor one, it was always above our tithe. We weren't gonna take it out of that. That's how we've always chosen to give. And we gave even when it was hard to give. When I was in eighth grade, I've told you stories, I grew up in a family with nine kids and we were poor. We were so poor it was four syllables, poor. Okay, we were dirt poor. And I, in eighth grade in Iowa, I detasseled corn one summer. And I said, and, and I made really good money doing it because it's a lousy job. And I detasseled corn and at the end of that summer, sure, I, I spent some things for myself, but I felt, Nobody told me to do this, but I just felt an inner longing as I was growing in the Lord. I was studying my Bible regularly every day. I just felt like God wants me to give and he wants me to give sacrificially. And that summer, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was probably close to 40, 50% of what I made that summer. And I put it, and I put it in the offering box. Made my dad freak out because we were poor at that time. But you know, there's no one telling me to do that. It just it felt right. I, want, I knew God wanted me to give. There were times in our early years of marriage where it was hard to give. It was hard to tithe. You know, we moved down to Orlando after graduating Bible college, went into seminary. I was working, making six bucks an hour and Amber uh, was on bed rest with preeclampsia with our, with our son. You know, if she were to work, she'd die. And so we're living on six bucks an hour. We still gave 10%. At that time, we actually even increased our giving to 12%. In the times of our greatest need, we increased our giving. And we even gave Christmas offerings and things like that above and beyond that tithe. Did God let us die? Clearly, I'm still here. Clearly, I'm not starving either. Now, there were times of leanness. We had to radically adjust our lifestyle. We had to shed some of the comfort that we would normally have, but we saw that as a sacrifice that we could give unto the Lord, and we trusted him with the outcome. Do you think God let us, you know, let us die? Do you think God let us uh, just go by without any kind of supernatural intervention and blessing? I'm here to tell you, I have so many stories of those times when, at, when we could least afford to give that we gave and God blessed us. In fact, I've only brought one example with you today. I brought something very special to my heart to share with you today. It's just a simple little yellow envelope. This was mailed to us in 1996 and we kept the envelope because it was an odd time. It was a time when I was, uh, <clears throat> we were struggling. It was a period of time in our life when I was going to work and one morning we had so little food, I took a raw baked potato as a sack lunch. Ever eat a raw baked potato, try to eat it like an apple? It's not as good as it sounds. But uh, we were really poor, but we were still giving. And God, this is just one of like 100 different stories I could tell you during this period of time where God proved that he gave back to us. So we got this little envelope in the mail and it has my name and address in both places, and it was typed back when people used typewriters. It was typed, somebody, whoever was giving us this money didn't want to be known who it was. And all it was, was I opened it up, and I still have it here, three pieces of typing paper. It said, God loves you, and had hundreds of dollars in it. That's it, no return address. Nobody wanted, nobody was proud. They weren't wanting thanks, they didn't want it wasn't self-aggrandizing. It wasn't, look at me. Oh, I want to help out the poor preacher boy who's eating baked potatoes at lunch. It was, just, it was just a way that they could bless us. And we don't know where that, I still don't know who that was. And that is one of a hundred different stories I could tell you as throughout the years when we faithfully gave, especially at times when we felt like we could not, that God opened up the windows of heaven, poured out upon us a blessing that we could not receive. And there's many of us here who don't have stories like that because we've not yet taken the step to make Jesus Lord and trust him with our future. 
and we have not yet intentionally, premeditatedly decided to give according to how God has prospered us. Friends, that's when you see the power of God active. When you're no longer trusting in you, you're trusting in him. And ultimately, that's what God is looking for in our giving. Not because God needs your money. He wants your heart. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we thank you this morning that as we, uh, as we study this passage here, it's, it's difficult in that it's hard. God, giving requires faith. Every act of faith is, is difficult because our flesh so wants to just rely on the things that I can control. But Lord, when we only do things when I'm in control, when I can see that I can get me to its intended outcome, we're living by sight and not by faith. God, and you have called us. You said in Hebrews 11 that the just shall live by faith. All of those who are justified, all those who are born again, God, you have called us to live by faith in things we can't see, we can't understand. Lord, I pray that not just in this area of giving financially, but in giving of our time and our efforts and our, our service, that you would teach us that when we give to you, you can be trusted that we would trust you to do more with the whatever percentage is left, that you'll do more with that when we give than if we just hoard it all for ourselves under our own control. God, help us to give you as a demonstration of your lordship in our life. Help us to give regularly, sacrificially, as an offering, fragrant and pleasing to you. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.